outsider, outsider. It's a word that I've been thinking a lot about this week. Um, Josh mentioned last week whenever he preached that he joined me at a um, kind of a conference in St. Louis where we, we heard all sorts of messages from people in the church that are working with those who would be considered outsiders. Um, Josh mentioned Syrian refugees. Another big issue um, at the conference was the intersection between different ethnicities. Um, how do white Christians and African-American Christians and Asian Christians and Hispanic Christians work together? And there were tears in the room at various times as the pain of different groups of outsiders talking about what it felt like. Um, the passages that we're going through deal with the, the sense of outsiders. And so I've been thinking about the word, thinking about the images that that conjures. Um, how you feel about the word outsider probably actually says quite a bit about how you view yourself and the people around you. Um, some of the things that I thought of are, are distrust. Does the word outsider conjure images of distrust in you? Maybe you think of someone who you view as an outsider and you think, why are they here? What do they want? Why can't they just get with the program? The type of attitudes that we have towards drifters, strangers, the vagrant, and a million other less savory names that we could use. Maybe in your heart there's distrust towards outsider, or, or maybe a word that comes to your mind is, is not distrust, but disgust. As you think about insiders, maybe you view yourself as the outsider, and you, you look at groups of people, and, and there's frustration and disgust with that. Some clique that never respected you you know, political insiders, elites, the folk that don't care about you but make decisions about you. Maybe whenever I use the word outsider, um, there's just kind of the attitude of longing that comes in. Like it's the sense that you've been outside and you wish it wasn't true. I want in. I want a seat at the table. I don't want to sit by myself. I want to be with the cool kids. I want to be in a different department at work. You know, the department where all the, the good stuff happens. Um, maybe you're thinking about friendships. You see people that have such a good friendship, and you're like, I wish I could be the third wheel in that. I wish I could have that type of closeness. Um, my guess is, is that each one of us has probably felt all of these things. At different times, we've been the insider, and other times, we've been the outsider, and the feelings that we have towards other people are mixed. I bring up these thoughts because I want us to think again freshly about the concept that we went through last week. I'm going to read a passage um, out of Ephesians chapter 2. This is actually one that would have been read before, but I want us to read it again, starting in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So as Paul talks to Ephesians there, he reminds them of who they were. He says, you were separated, you were alienated, you had no hope, you were without God. Um, Elsewhere in parallel passages, he adds a couple different words. In Colossians, he talks about them being hostile towards God. And in Romans, he says, you were enemies. You get the picture there painted? Complete, complete separation and alienation from God. He paints a brutal picture about where people are when they're outside of Christ. And it's meant to be jarring and depressing when you use terms like no hope. That's meant to be scary. But then he gives good news in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so this truth is at the center of what we call the gospel. It's the truth that you were far off, you were without hope, you didn't have anything as it, as, as it stands before God, but because of his mercy, he rescued you. He sent Jesus Christ to suffer a death um, for your sins and to invite you into a family. That's what we call the gospel. Christ saves us from our alienation. And so our passage today, the one that Josh read just a few moments ago, shows us some of the implications of the gospel. Um, If those of us who belong to Christ are no longer outsiders in regards to our relationship with God, then what are we? Um, What I hope to draw out, what I find here in the passage is this, that in the church, God is taking broken people, outsiders from every corner of the globe, and he's building something new and meaningful. Let me read that again. In the church, the church universal, God is taking a broken people, people that are messed up, outsiders from everywhere, and he's building something new and beautiful. Let's move into our passage. Starting with verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I'm going to talk about four different things that God is building from these passages, and, and we'll start here. Um, he's building a nation. So remember earlier in Ephesians, what we just read, you were strangers, you were alienated. Now he says those things are reversed. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but first off, your fellow citizens. So what that means is God is taking us, we who are broken and alienated from him, and he's knitting us together. No longer outsiders, no longer foreigners, but now citizens together. Citizens of one nation. Um, Frankly, there could be an entire sermon series on the nation that God is building Um, that God has a kingdom, that he has a a nation in mind, is clear throughout all of Scripture. He talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom throughout Scripture. Um, In in Peter, 
he speaks of us being a, a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And then the image that we see in, in the book of Revelation at the end is one of a throne that Christ sits on as king. And so there's this idea that God is building a kingdom, he's building a nation for himself, and that those who love him, that those belong to him, are citizens in that kingdom. We're not outsiders. And there's focus on the change here. Think about this. How do non-citizens live in a, in a country compared to people who are actually citizens? If you live in a country, is it easier to be a citizen or a non-citizen? Feel free to shout it out. It's a citizen, right? Um, like, if, if we just use modern times, if you're not a citizen of the country, you are supposed to have paperwork for, while you're, for why you're here. And that paperwork is not cheap. So if, if, if you are let into the country, you have to have a reason, you have to pay, you have to travel. And then once you're here, you're generally not viewed as one of us, right? But if you're a citizen, you don't have to have paperwork. Like if, as a citizen, I can walk down the street, I can get a job, I don't have to carry around papers, okay? It's easier to live as a citizen, and that was even more true in the Roman world. If you were a Roman citizen, which would have been the context that Paul was in, the laws applied differently to you. If you were a non-citizen and you got in trouble for something, the, uh, the governors could pretty much have you jailed, imprisoned, beaten, with very little trial. Like, if they just thought you were a troublemaker, they could do horrible things to you. But if you were a citizen and they were caught doing something bad to you, they were killed. And so being a citizen afforded you a level of protection that non-citizens just didn't have. So as Paul talks to the Ephesians and says, you're no longer strangers, you're citizens, understand the implication of that. The law applies differently to them now. God doesn't view them as an outsider to be punished. He views them as one to be loved and treated with respect. The gospel has done away with the wrath of God and has brought them into citizenship. And so he's making a nation. The second thing that he's building that we see in this verse is a family. He's building a family. Not only are they just fellow citizens, but they're members of what? Of the household of God. So if the first transition is good, that they can view themselves as citizens, this one is amazing. Think about the difference of being a citizen in a country under a ruler and being the son of that ruler. Do you guys see the difference there? How you're treated is, is, is completely different. We're not just citizens under a king, we're family members of the king's household. God is not just building a nation, he's building a family. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer foreigners. We're now a part of the household. And along with that goes thoughts of closeness, of love, care, loyalty, dedication. Things that an alien and a foreigner can never expect. 
they can never expect closeness or love or care or loyalty. But those in the family can. So God is building a family. A family out of outsiders. Let's go ahead and read verse 20. So it just mentioned the household of God, and it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so God is building a family, but he's also building a home. There's kind of a play on words here. The word household refers to the family, but it also refers to where the family lives. And so Paul kind of does a little twist here. He starts off the first part of the sentence by talking about it in regards to a family, and then he shifts into the image of a, of a house, of a home, the physical place where they live. And he says that that home that he's building is built on something. It's built on a foundation. Notice that the home that God is building for us the home that God is building for all who love him is not built upon like warm fuzzies. Right? It's, it's not built upon like mere emotion that we feel towards one another. It's not built upon um, kind of a, it's not like we're united by some vague sense of togetherness. Sometimes you hear, you hear people talk about the universal human brotherhood, right? Because we're all human, we should all feel kind of this vague sense of togetherness. It, most of you have heard that concept before. How's that worked out for us? The vague sense of human brotherhood in the world. Um, people, I, I really don't think people actually believe it, because if they did, there wouldn't be wars, right? No one would kill another person. And so it's not based on mere feelings or some kind of vague feeling of, of brotherhood. It's not based upon those things. Rather, I want us to know, like, hear this. If you're a Christian, you are a part of an ancient tradition, a family whose origins stretch back to the beginning of time. Like, it's, it's an ancient tradition, one that has been unified through thick or thin, through so much. Um, but the question might come up, like, how does a group of people stay unified over that amount of time? Like, if every Christian in every place and every time can look up and say, I am a part of the church, regardless of where they were born or when they were born, whether they were rich or poor, how can that group stay unified? Um, I mean, think about how most people groups stay unified. They stay unified um, historically because of their ethnic identity. You know, I'm, I'm white, you're white, let's be white together. You know, it's kind of a an idea, or, you know, I'm Hispanic, you're Hispanic, let's be Hispanic together. Ethnic identities have often united people. Like, that's one way. Um, geography often unites people. If we live together in the same town, and some people from another town come over to take, you know, our food, then we're united because we live together in the same place. Geography has often united people. Um, common economic interest unites people. So you think of like farmers co-ops, why do they get together? Because they get together out of common economic interest. If we work together, things will be cheaper for us. Right? That's often a reason people get together. That's why the European Union exists. That's kind of been in the news this week. That's a reason why a group, people group together. Um, and then just cultural traditions, how you celebrate the holidays, the holidays you choose to celebrate, the type of clothes you wear, 
cultural traditions often unite people. But the church isn't like that at all. Right? None of those things should apply to the church. We are not just one ethnicity. We're many ethnicities. I mean, Jesus Christ was a Jew. The first apostles were Jewish. I know of one guy in the room who can claim Jewish descent. Like, most of us are not that. We are different ethnicities. We come from different places. The church in England is the same church that's here, and the church in Asia is the same church that's here. Common economic interests, Christians are all over the place as far as how much they make and the, the livelihoods that they have. And I guarantee you if you visit a church, a real church in Africa, the cultural traditions in that church are going to look completely different than this, right? So none of those things that unite most people groups unite us. None of them. So it has to be something else. We may not be united by ethnic blood, but we are united by blood, by Christ's blood. We may not be united by geography today, but we all look forward to being in heaven, to being in the new heavens and new earth, together in one city. We may not be united in you know, the types of jobs we have and where we make our money but if we follow the Bible, we are united in what we think is valuable. The Bible teaches us to lay up our treasures in heaven. We view the real wealth to be had as spiritual wealth. And then we may not have peculiar um, cultural traditions that unite us, but we are united by traditions, the teachings of Jesus, the apostles, and the prophets. You see that here in the passage? If you can, throw up verse 20 again. Um, the home that we're in is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We're united by what the apostles have taught. Oftentimes in the scripture and in other Christian writings, if you hear about the apostles and the prophets used together in one group, do you know what they're talking about? Any guesses? Like whenever someone reads the apostles and the prophets, they're reading scripture. What we believe, what we're united in, is certainly Christ and what he's done for us. He's the cornerstone, but we're also united by what the apostles and the prophets have taught us. The teachings that they have passed down um, now, I want to take a moment to do an aside here because uh, I, I think it's helpful to us in our context. We, we live in Jefferson City, which is a heavily Catholic town, and this is an area where there's some disagreement. Like, this verse draws out what does it mean for the church to be built upon the apostles and the prophets, okay? And uh, some of you, like me, may come from a relatively Catholic background, and so this is something that we need to think about. Um, whenever someone who is Catholic, they may be a true Christian, like don't hear me saying they're not, but whenever someone who's a Catholic says the church is built on the apostles, what they mean is that the church's leadership is literally built upon the apostles. That the apostles were in power, 
and they decided the leaders who would be in power after them, and then those people would decide the next leaders, and so on and so forth over 2,000 years. Does that make sense? And so when they say the church is built on the apostles, they look to their priests, and they look to their pope, and they say they are in the continuity of the apostles, and the way that we know that we're a part of the church is because we're under those people that had the leadership passed down to them. Does that make sense? And so the understanding is that it, within, within Catholic teaching is that um, leadership is passed from one to another with maybe a little bit of flexibility in what's taught. So doctrine develops over time. Like it, Catholics believe things differently now than they used to. It changes. Um, we are not in a Catholic church, which may be obvious. And there's a reason we're not in a Catholic church, okay? Like there, there's stuff that we believe that is different. And this is a key point. We do not believe here, like as Protestants, that it is the succession of leadership that builds us into the church on the foundation of the apostles. We don't see the apostles themselves and the leaders under them as being the things that were built upon. For sure, God has used a succession of leaders to build his church. Like, don't hear me saying otherwise. The apostles were greatly used. But the most important thing that they wanted to transfer was their teaching. I'm going to read a passage out of 2 Timothy here. 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, who is one of his disciples. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is Paul, who's an apostle, teaching Timothy, a leader that he put into place, saying, this is how you pick leaders, right? You know what I taught you, you know my teaching, and I want you to find faithful men who will pass that teaching down to others. And so in the Protestant world, we, we take this verse and we, we say the teaching is what's important. The foundation that we're built upon is not just the people, it's what they taught, it's what they represented. And so, whereas one sees the passing of leadership from one to another with somewhat flexible teaching, we would say what's primary is the, pass is the passing of teaching from one generation to another. The most important thing that we can do as a church is pass on the truth to the next generation. And then we would have somewhat flexible church leadership. We don't necessarily trace you know, like a genealogy, back to the original. And so I say all that just to bring us back to this verse and say the church that God is building, the home that God is building, is built upon actual truth and teaching. What unites us is not our ethnicity, not our bloodlines, it's not our economic interests, it's not our geography, it's that we all worship the same Christ, and we all follow the same teachings from the same apostle. The church is not only founded on persons, it's founded upon the truth that they preached. And again, Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. Um, just a moment on the idea of him being a cornerstone. Um, the cornerstone in a building is the most important block that's laid historically. It's 
Sometimes we think of cornerstones as just those little things on the side of buildings that have the dates carved into them. In ancient times, whenever they built a building, they would find one large, very, very precisely cut stone. They would survey the land, and they would lay that one stone down as the starting point. And the angles of that stone determined the shape of the entire building. And so if they were off a little bit, your, the building would be off kilter and would collapse. And so the cornerstone was the first block laid and the most important block laid, because if the cornerstone was off, the whole building would be off. So whenever we talk about Christ as our cornerstone, um, we understand him as, as the absolute foundation, the most important. Let's go ahead and verse 21 as well. So in Christ, it's what was just mentioned, and it says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so he's not just making a temple for us, um, not just making a home for us, rather, but he's building a temple. So what is a temple? Um, a temple is a place where God meets man. It's the place where the two stand together in fellowship. It's a place where worship happens, where prayer happens, and where there's closeness. And so if we have images of the temple in the Old Testament, the one that did stand in Jerusalem, why did the people go to that temple? They went to offer sacrifices to God. They went to pray to God. They went to worship God. Because in that temple, they viewed that as the place where God met them. But here, we hear that God is building a new temple. A temple out of people. A temple out of us. The whole building is built in Christ, built up, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. <clears throat> so those are the things that he's building. And we want to come to a place of application. Um, go ahead and put up verse 22. So Paul has been speaking about kind of the universal church. He's been talking about how people are drawn together and, and built together into a church. And here he makes it local. Here he brings the focus to the Ephesians specifically. And so he's been using this grand, beautiful language, and now in a sense he looks directly at the Ephesians, uh, Ephesians and he says, what about you? Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the you here, you also, is plural. Uh, in olden days, they would use the word ye. So if you have a King James Version, it would say ye also are being built together. If you're from the South, they would say y'all. Okay? Do you get the idea of why, we're, why I bring out this differentiation? If it's just you singular, right? then this verse becomes all about just God and you, okay? Or just God and an individual Ephesian. In him, you're being built together. So you could get the image that God's building me up and his spirit dwells in me personally. But that's not actually what Paul's saying here. He's looking at a church and he's saying God is pulling you together. 
you local church, you Ephesians. He's pulling you together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the church um, is a local picture of what the church universal, the church everywhere looks like. Does that make sense? So the church everywhere is certainly a temple, but in the same way, the church local, just us together. We are also a dwelling place for God. That was true of the Ephesians. It's true about us. We're being built together. Right? If they were being built together by the Spirit into a dwelling place, then we, Chorus, are being built together. The Holy Spirit's goal, hear this, the Holy Spirit's goal for our church is to knit our lives together closely. Whenever we say, as, as Josh did, that we're a family, that we're supposed to be a family, that's, just, that's not just a marketing gimmick. That's not just us saying, some churches don't feel like family, and we want to feel like family, so that's a distinctive, right? It's not just something that we like. We like the family feeling, and so that's what we do here at church. That's what the Holy Spirit wants every local church to be. It says, in him you are being built together by the Spirit into a dwelling place. We're to be a family. And if we're not, that's a failure because that's what the Holy Spirit wants for us. But we are a family. We are being knit together into a family. And it says that God dwells among us. Like, isn't that a glorious thought? Whenever we gather here together, and whenever we worship, as imperfect as that is, even though we all come in with distractions and frustrations, and sometimes have had arguments as we were getting in the car to come to church, like, even though all of that's true, whenever we gather together and we turn our eyes towards Christ, he dwells with us. And if, if, the, if a slide gets messed up as I'm back there doing the slides, like happened last week, or if a chord is missed, or if a verse is, is wrong, or et cetera, et cetera, Christ still dwells with us. Even among our failings, he dwells with us. notice that it's something that continues. You are being built together. I won't draw out all the Greek here, but it's the, it, there's an idea in that wording that it's something that continues. It doesn't stop. He's continually at work building his church together. Okay. <clears throat> So we're coming into the end here. And I really want to bring down some practical things. Um, as, I, as I read this and as I dwelt on this and as I preached this, there are two kind of fears that, that welled up in me as I thought about our church. Okay? So I'm, I'm afraid of two 
two things. The first thing um, that I'm afraid of is that some of us might still feel like outsiders. Do you hear me on that? Like we just heard the glorious truth about how we're not outsiders. That's what we've talked about the entire, the entire sermon. And so one of my fears is that some of us may still feel that way. We might feel outside the group, alone, alienated. Maybe we come to the gathering, we come to an MC, maybe we're even in a fight club, but there's this sense in us that we're still by ourselves. That our friendships aren't as strong as other people's friendships are. That even though we're a family, maybe I'm like the weird cousin who doesn't get invited to all the family meals, right? Um, I'm afraid that there may be some of us that feel like outsiders. And it's two things to speak to that. Um, The first off is if you feel that way, and I have no way of knowing, some of this stuff is in the emotions, like I have felt this way. And so don't, don't hear me belittling you at all. But if you feel this way, if you feel like an outsider among us, hear this. If you belong to Jesus, if you're a Christian, even if we disagree on little things, then you're truly our family. Like, you're our family, you're our brother, you're our sister. And if you don't feel that way, then please come talk to me. Like, say something to me, say something to Josh, say something to Rich, say something to a friend, say something to somebody. If you're a believer and you feel like you're not a part of the family, then please bring that up. Um, if I or someone else has, have, have ever caused you any kind of hurt, please talk to me, talk to them. Tell us. If the Spirit is building us together, if the Spirit is knitting us together, then he wants us to work on our issues. He doesn't want us to let alienation stand so that we all just kind of drift apart. So if you're a Christian and you feel outside, you're not, your family, come talk to us. If you're not a Christian, if you examine your life and you say, you know, I really don't know where I stand with Jesus, I'm still figuring this stuff out, I don't know what I believe, then uh, number one, that's okay. Most of us have been there. Um, we know what it's like to be in that place. And so don't hear us talking down on you at all. Um, if you, if you don't belong to Christ, if you're not sure that you can call yourself a Christian, we, will, we, we are willing to walk with you and pray for you and be with you, but know this, you're invited in. At no point do any of us want to say, nope, you can't come in. If you're not sure where you're at, hear this, Jesus died for you, and he died for all of your doubts, and he died for all of your problems, And he died for all of the things that stop you from coming to him. His arms are open to you. Even if other Christians have looked at you and closed their arms, and even if you've been rejected by others, Christ stands ready to love you and save you. All you have to do is come to him. You don't even have to settle here. 
can be a part of our church. You just have to come to Jesus. We do think the Bible teaches you need to be a part of a church. But we care most of all that you love Jesus. That's my first fear, is that some of us would feel like outsiders. This is my second one. I'm afraid that some of us... um, I'm afraid that some of us might be living as if we're not a church that Christ is in the process of building. So we come to a church and we love the social environment and we love kind of the family feeling that we get, but we, we kind of stop there. I'm afraid that we might treat others among us as outsiders. That's the truth. I'm afraid that we might reject what the Spirit is trying to do in us and that that'll affect the way that we treat others. There are good reasons to be concerned about a brother or sister. There are, you hear what I'm saying? Like, if there are people in this church where you're like, I'm not quite sure where they're at, like, there are good reasons to be concerned for someone. Um, I mean, if someone has, like, hatred and malice in them that bubbles up all the time, and they seem to hate everybody, well, then that's something to, like, pray about. That's something to be concerned about. That's something to go to them over. Um, If someone has a complete, utter disregard for the scripture and they call themselves a Christian, that's something to be concerned about. Um, Heresy is a real thing. False teaching is a real thing. And so, but there are also reasons that people divide that are absolutely shameful. Like, there, are, there have been divisions in this very church that are shameful. We fight them, surely, but they pop up. And so there's a fear in me that we could easily slip into them if we're not in them already. I mentioned these not to point fingers, um, but I, I really want our church to have a, cultural, a culture where these things don't exist. Does that make sense? So we talked about some of the first things, ethnicity, social status, the amount of money you have. Those things are not acceptable in the church of God. But then there are other things where the scripture speaks, but there's freedom. Things like career choices, things like politics and parenting styles and where you send your kids to school. Areas that um, tend to divide on Facebook, right? where people tend to gang up and we ought not divide the family that God's building together over those secondary issues. And so I want to invite you, um, instead of, you know, if you're in a place where you recognize that you've got a problem with somebody else in the church, right, then go to them. Like, do whatever you can to resolve that If you don't see yourself in that place, but you're still concerned that others in the church might feel like they're outsiders, then I'd encourage you to think of one person this week. Think of one person in the church this week, and number one, pray for them, and like go to them and say something encouraging, something that you recognize in them that has blessed you. Um, You can tell them, you're my one person this week, as long as what you think is actually genuine. Does that make sense? Um, it can't be a pastor or an empty leader. That's your challenge. Not me or Josh or Rich or Pugsley. 
um, needs to be a person in the church. Find someone, just one person this week, and encourage them. Um, the other part of that is that if God is building his church, that I'm afraid that we might not be doing, is that we might not be inviting other outsiders in. Others outside the church. If Christ is building his church, and if he's invited us, we who were once outsiders, into his family, then who are we to say it stops here? It stops with us. We need to share Jesus with people in our city. They need him desperately. They're out there and they're fighting over a thousand different issues and so few of them have any peace. And the ones that do, it's so fleeting. There are people out there, frankly, that are just like us culturally. That like to eat the same food we do, that wear the same clothes that we do listen to the same music that we do and work in the same places that we do. There are people that are just like you that need Jesus. Please talk to them. Invite them to a gathering. Invite them to an MC. And there are those that are completely unlike us. There are people that don't have our values and don't share our individual politics and like music that we hate. There are people that, um, that smell, that offend us with the way they look, that offend us with the clothes they wear, people that are not like us, that God wants in his church, that God is inviting into his church. And if God can knit us together into a family, if the Spirit can build a church out of us, then he can take the people that offend us and he can build them into the church too. Remember what we talked about earlier. We were all alienated. We were all strangers. We were all enemies. We were all hostile. And Christ brought us together again. Think of one person this week. This is my second challenge. Think of one person this week outside of the church that you can pray for. Just one person. Maybe you pray for a bunch of people, but this week I'd like to focus on one person that you can pray for, specifically that they would come to know Jesus, number one, and number two, specifically that God would give you the opportunity to minister, their, minister to them in some way, to serve them, to speak to them, to invite them to a gathering, to invite them to an MC, to love them. Pray for them, and pray that God would give you opportunity. We live in a world full of outsiders that don't have to be outsiders. This won't be on the screen, but I'm going to close by reading um, Ephesians 12 and 13 again. Go ahead, feel free to close your eyes. Think about these words. Think about yourself. Think about what Christ has done for you and what he can do for others. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we want to thank you for your grace and for your mercy towards us. We were all strangers. We were all once far off. Many of us have been hostile to you. Many of us have been your enemies. But you loved us and you showed grace to us. You sent us your son to die for us, to take the punishment for all of our sins and for all of our hatred. And now things are different. Now you draw near to us, and we can draw near to you. We can worship you. We can know that you love us. It's such a huge change, and one we never deserved, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We ask that you would continue to build your church that you'd continue to draw us together as a family and that you would just give us the ability and the voices to honor and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered together with his apostles and he held up a loaf of bread and he broke it and he told them, this is my body that's been broken for you. Take, eat, do this in